yes, fiber is important. We're you know, slowly but surely generating the tools to have a better understanding of dietary fiber and how to best utilize it strategically. Basically, that's my main take-home point for today. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, Contact NAM at abvista.com. Hello, everyone. This is Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And today I have Dr. Tom Weber with me. Dr. Tom Weber is a swine technical manager for AB Vista. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. The sun is shining here and so we can't complain too much. A little bit overcast here in Northwest Ohio, but at least the temperature is nice. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Tom, um, if you wouldn't mind, I know sometimes our audience doesn't always know uh, some of our speakers. So would you mind just giving a little bit of an introduction about who you are? Sure, sure. I am uh, Tom Weber. Um, Grew up on a farm and livestock operation in Southern Indiana. Funny thing about that is I actually grew up around cattle and sheep and really didn't generate an interest in swine until I finished my bachelor's degree in animal science from Purdue University. So after I'd finished my bachelor's degree, I realized, well, I better find a job somewhere because the operation at home wasn't large enough to absorb one more person from, a, from an income perspective. So I had the opportunity to um, join some acquaintances of ours who were basically in the middle of upgrading their swine, their swine production operation. Back at that time, we're talking around the year 2000. So it was about 700 sows, so different, decent size for a family size operation. You know, what's interesting about that operation at that time, we were going from um, pen mating with boars to crate gestation and AI. Kind of funny now how, how the industry is going back to, to pen gestation again. But nonetheless, it was a great opportunity to learn about, you know, how to AI sows, flowing pigs from a, on a weekly schedule from a batch system, 
et cetera. You know, I was very fortunate enough on that operation that they were very high on the learning curve. So we always had folks in from genetics companies and nutrition companies coming in and talking about the latest research that they were generating and working on. So that kind of stimulated an interest of mine. Hey, maybe at some point in time, I want to go back to school and get my graduate degrees so I can be involved in swine research and nutrition. Um, so I had the opportunity to go back to Purdue University and get my master's degree and PhD in nutrition and immunology under Dr. Alan Schenkel and Mike Spurlock at that time. Um, after I finished my degree in a short postdoctoral fellowship in the pharmaceutical industry, I had the opportunity to go out to Iowa and work at USDA Agricultural Research Service there in Ames, working with Dr. Brian Kerr in the area of, of soy nutrition and really understanding some of these higher fiber ingredients that were coming out of the ethanol industry at the time. So kind of an interest of mine, you know, in the, in the fiber I mean, it generated back then, not only fiber, but some of the aspects of the degradation products, such as short chain fatty acids, such as butyrate. We did some research on that as well. Um, after several years at USDA, I was recruited to industry at Alanco Animal Health to help them uh, do R&D in their fledgling enzyme business at the time. And also had the opportunity to uh, be involved in uh, animal health research from a pharmaceutical perspective as well. So that was a great opportunity to, to learn about really the regulatory side of things as well, not only in the US, but globally in terms of what it really took to be able to get certain claims on, on products. After a couple of years at Alanco, I realized, well, I wanted to get back to the nutrition field a little bit more. So I was recruited to um, Kalmbach Feeds here in Northwest Ohio. And that was a great opportunity to be involved in swine production, and I also had the opportunity to help bring online a brand new feed mill as well and learn about some of the nuances of feeding pelleted diets from, from wean to finish in an operation. Um, after about three and a half years there, I was uh, recruited to my current role at AB Vista, where I uh, basically serve our customers in, in North America. So that's kind of where I sit currently. Well, that's great. You've had certainly a lot of different experiences, a lot of, of good production experience, as well as um, wide range of nutrition exposure. Um, when we talked today about what you were going to, to want to discuss, uh, fiber came up. Um, obviously, that's where you've done a lot of your research, and I think it's a really good topic. We don't really talk much about fiber in the United States. We we do, but we don't, right? So, oh, distillers has fiber. So anytime anybody says we need fiber, just throw distillers in and we're good. But how we look at fiber in the United States is certainly different than how the European countries, for example, look at fiber and, and factor it in. So could you maybe just you know, start the discussion as to why you're so focused on fiber in the United States and, and where you think some of that value may be? Sure, certainly, certainly. And as I'd mentioned back in my career at USDA, you know, during my time focused on ingredients coming out of the ethanol industry, a lot of those ingredients were high fiber by their nature, just because the starch was being taken out of the corn and we were basically left with fiber, mineral and protein at that point in time. So we were really trying to figure out, okay, how well can the pig utilize these quote higher fiber ingredients? Now, that being said, we do know that there is, you know, a greater abundance of fibrous feedstuffs in this distillers grains and ethanol byproducts. And that's where perhaps some of the, 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 the global aspect of it comes in when you talk about ingredients. You know, you go over to Europe, you know, where they use more small grains and there's different byproducts that are being brought in with different fiber levels and fiber types. You know, and when you think about fiber, I think a lot of it comes back to the definition of what are we calling fiber, right? 
some of it comes back to the analytics around it. I know having spent several years in the feed industry, I'm still somewhat surprised we're using crude fiber as an indicator on our, on our feed labels when it really doesn't get into some of the, the, the functional aspects of, of fiber. And I think now some of the, you know, later analytical aspects, we are able to dive more deeply into the functional aspects as well. So let's let's start with a phase of production. So let's start with the sow, right? She's near and dear to my heart. Yep. I've spent a lot of time with her. Um, we've always talked about fiber being important, particularly in gestation when she's on a controlled ration in terms of her amount that she's fed every day. But what other value do we see with fiber with both a gestating and a lactating sow? Yep, and as you indicated, obviously during gestation and limit-fed animals, you know, I remember dumping several tons of bags of alfalfa meal into gestation diets, you know, almost 20 years ago, you know, and that was more from a, from a satiety perspective. You know, obviously the folks in Europe have been thinking about it along that lines as well, because there's some regulatory component there, you know, where they're supposed to feed a more bulky diet to sows that are limit fed, just from a satiety perspective. But in addition to improved satiety, there's other benefits from a metabolic perspective, perhaps, you know, when you think about some of the degradation products of fiber fermentation, such as short chain fatty acids, which, you know, change up the metabolism a little bit, you know, and enable that sow to perhaps be a little bit more efficient, I guess, is the word I'm looking for from an energetic perspective, especially as, as she's limit fed. And not only that, as she transitions to being limit fed, you know, a relatively low energy diet to, to, to a higher energy, higher amino acid dense lactation diet, you know, and there, there's some you know, published data sets out there showing benefits in terms of if one feeds a higher fiber diet during gestation, you can potentially see improvements in, in feed consumption during lactation, as well as improved weaning weights as well. And then some of the more recent data sets coming out of the EU, you know, showing decreases in, in farrowing duration with a higher fiber diet around that farrowing time as well. And that's one of the papers I remember is Dr. Gretchen Hill put one out many years ago where it listed a couple different fiber types. And I just remember alfalfa meal being listed on there as the one that improved milk yield and, and some of the lactation performance, right? So those discussions have been around in the United States a long time, but we don't tend to really feed a lot of fiber unless it's, it's convenient for us, right? Because yep. the conversation is, oh, we can use soy hulls, but soy hulls are expensive. And so what options do we have for for good quality fiber, right? Because you kind of touched on it. We have good digestible fiber that has value, and then we have indigestible fiber. So what types of good quality products should we be looking at for fibrous uh, components for the that, that That's a good question. And you bring up a good point about alfalfa meal. I mean, there was a lot of work done anywhere from 30 to 40 years ago looking at alfalfa meal and, and sow diets. And interestingly, there was some benefit shown even in terms of sows that lasted through parity three when they fed a higher alfalfa meal diet. I think that was some work that Steve Pullman had done back in the 1970s, early 1980s, giving a shout out to Steve there. But, um, you know, in terms of fiber sources, as we well know, you know, besides some of the ethanol derived co-products and maybe wheat middlings here in the Eastern Corn Belt and other locations in the U.S., there's not a huge source of economical, high quality fibrous ingredients, especially when you talk about soluble fiber. You know, in terms of breaking down the functional characteristics of fiber, there's some data showing that it's actually the balance of fiber, you know, in terms of ratio of insoluble fiber to soluble fiber that may be more indicative of the physiological effects of fiber than just 
fiber per se. You know, so I think some of this comes back to having an understanding of the fiber that's in our current ingredients that we're feeding. You know, I know the, the current company I'm working for, AB Vista, we have a database of, of NIR data on global ingredients and the variation within an ingredient, for example, corn or wheat mids or even DDGs is somewhat interesting. And, and, and is there a way to even capitalize on that when it comes to formulating our diets from a fiber perspective? You know, I think now as we start generating more of these analytical tools to be able to delve down into, okay, what are the fiber and fiber types and fiber sources that are associated with benefits and performance? I think we can start asking more of those questions and validating those results that are seen in, in smaller scale studies that, that clearly need some replication. And I think you bring up a very good point. So you talked, and we'll, we'll come back to one of them because you actually had a couple in there. One was on the ratio of soluble versus insoluble. And the other you mentioned was just analysis of, of ingredients. And so, you know, is there an appropriate method for analysis that we should be looking at to, to really get a good understanding of, of fiber and the fiber types? Yeah, and that's obviously been the million-dollar question for the past yeah. couple of years, especially in the U.S. You know, obviously, our, our feed labels in the U.S. are based on crude fiber or have to depict crude fiber levels. We've moved a little bit past that in, in the non-ruminant space to go to the NDF-ADF scheme. You know, we can take it one level beyond that in terms of complexity and go to our, you know, soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, lignin, add that up and get our TDF. Obviously, from a lab analysis perspective, we don't have the, have the time or budgets as commercial nutritionists to send a lot of feed samples off to the lab to have TDF done. You know, that was one of my frustrations when I was in the commercial swine industry, feeding hogs real time. You'd send an ingredient off for analysis. Well, by the time you got the results back, the ingredient was already gone. So that's where I think some of these tools such as NIR are becoming very powerful now to be able to come in and do more real-time analysis. You know, not only in a shorter time period, but we can run more samples in a day because one person can run a heck of a lot of samples on an NIR in a day versus wet lab analysis. Absolutely. Um, is there a certain ratio we should be looking at? Do you have one in mind today? Because I, you know, I think about all the different ratios we have in our formulation software, and it's it's easy to create one as long as we put the right information into the ingredients. So, is is there a ratio you think we should be targeting? You know, I don't know if there's necessarily an answer today. I think we're kind of getting closer in terms of having an understanding. You know, if I remember right, a common U.S. gestation diet's about 9 to 10 to 1 ratio of insoluble to soluble. You know, if you look at some of the more recent publications, maybe a, a 3 to 4 in a perfect world. Again, that may be somewhat hard to achieve with U.S., mid, at least in the Midwest, corn, soybean meal-based diets. You know, the other aspect to look at it is a grams of fiber per day intake, whether it's TDF or soluble fiber. Some of the data are indicating that maybe we ought to be targeting about 400 grams per day total dietary fiber intake and about 70 grams per day of soluble fiber intake for, for gestating cells. Perfect. Perfect. So you, you were saying TDF a lot and you, you did... Um respond back with um, the definition, but total digestible fiber. So just for our audience, if they're not familiar with TDF and what that means, but you talk about how we go from crude fiber down a step to NDF and ADF, and then we go down to total digestible fiber, or TDF. 
why should we go that far, right? So we can, we have the same discussion with energy. We've gone from ME to NE. So why, why do I want to go to TDF? What's, what's the value? What's it going to bring to me? You know, I think, it, I think it brings in some value in terms of clarity of the functional properties of the fiber that we're feeding. You know, and are we able to formulate getting closer to those targeted values that, that should bring benefit, right? I almost think about it, you know, we're not quite that granular yet in terms of, you know, amino acids from an analogy perspective, right? We know what amino acid ratios that we should be targeting for optimal performance. Can we get there with dietary fiber? You know, I think even even lipids, for example, I think we're getting closer when we think about omega-6 to omega-3 ratios, for example. You know, even though that's another podcast on its own right in terms of talking about the appropriate lipid balance to be feeding and lipid quality, et cetera. But getting back to the fiber aspect of it, I think it, it enables us to have a better understanding of some of the functional properties of the fiber that way, rather than just formulating off a, of a straight crude fiber or NDF. Um, so let's go back into the gestating sow for a minute. When we talk about fiber, you know, what type of mode of action are we really looking at with fiber? So you, you mentioned short chain fatty acids. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the mode of action of fiber in sows, because I think we the gestating sow is clearly different than than any other type of pig we deal with. And so yep. let's let's talk a little bit more about what's happening with fiber in, in that sow. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if the mechanisms have been 100% pinned down. I think it's probably a combination of several different mechanisms. You know, obviously from a, from a you know, composition of digestive perspective, you're changing the viscosity of the digestive for one thing. You know, you're also, as you alluded to, in, increasing fermentation in, in the hindgut. There could also be more of a physical component in terms of a, of a, of a scratch factor, right, in the gut, le leading to increased mucin production and a change in intestinal barrier function as well. And then obviously a whole host of effects on the host microbiome, which the tools are out there these days to even have a better understanding of that now as well. You know, so I think it's a combination of mechanisms that are leading to some of the benefits or alterations that we're seeing when we're feeding a higher level of fiber. What about lactation? So we talk a lot about fiber ingestation and, and I've seen diets 40, 50% distillers grains, right? So we know we have lots of insoluble fiber in that case, but um, what about lactation? Should I worry? Um, you know, I think I'm, I've written a handful of papers on 30% distillers and yeah. doesn't seem to hurt much, but should we think about it or, or is it really not a factor in lactation? You know, I think that's a good question. You know, obviously one needs to keep in mind that the energy and nutrient density of those diets, especially going into the summertime here as we go into that season, you know, as long as we don't limit that sow's intake, you know, from a capacity perspective to enable her to take in nutrients to support her lactation and subsequent reproduction, you know, I, I think some added fiber is perhaps good, especially around that fiber or that farrowing time point from a constipation perspective and a fecal quality perspective as well, you know, adding some bulk to the diet that way. You know, and, and you're right, I've seen some diets myself that are relatively high in distiller's grains, for example, and even wheat mids and some pelleted diets that I've put together before. You know, sows seem to do just, just fine on that, and at least anecdotally, the farm managers seem to think that they did better on higher fiber diets, at least certain genetic lines. You know, I think that may be another area that's ripe for research after the gestating style aspect of it as well as having an understanding of elevated fiber, especially in these hyperprolific cells, 
you know, that we may, we may know are somewhat limited on nutrient intake capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, certainly there's, there's a lot of value when we, particularly when we think about the fermentation aspect of the fiber. Um, and I've heard some rumblings in the past of maybe we should increase amino acids if we're going to feed more fiber. Any thoughts on that? You know, that, that's a good question, especially when you think about the potential impact of, of fiber on amino acid digestion in the small intestine. You know, and, and to your point, I think that's an area that perhaps needs some more research, even from a maybe a digestibility perspective, to go back in and look at how much are we really altering that digestibility of the, of the amino acids that we're trying to target. Mm -hmm. You know, but obviously, if you go around the globe, you know, some folks are feeding higher, higher levels of fiber just by virtue of the ingredients they're feeding. You know, and their sows seem to be somewhat productive. So, sow is a pretty forgiving animal, is what I've learned. Um, unfortunately, though, it comes off of her own body, and and that's hard to measure sometimes as well. And and you know, we've seen that in, in a lot of the research that's done. Um, so it it can confound a lot of our discussions and our research when we start thinking about her and her abilities to to mobilize tissue. Yep, and obviously those are you know some harder questions and, and longer duration questions to answer from a study perspective when we start talking about gestation and lactation in cells. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then we can get into the whole discussion of longevity, right? And that's yes. an even longer, <laughs> a longer review of what we have to do. Yeah, um, and it seems a lot of folks don't have the patience to sit around and conduct yeah. those types of studies and wait for the results on them. And also, as, as you're well aware of, sow research can be somewhat labor intensive as well. So, Yes, just a little bit, for sure. Well, one of the other things that that you and I had talked about before we started today was was really fiber in the nursery. So we don't, at least I don't, um, tend to look at an NDF or a crude fiber component when I formulate nursery diets, especially that early pig, right? I'm focused on lactose. I'm focused on, you know, enough digestible ingredients in there for that baby pig to get started. So why should I worry about fiber in a in an early nursery diet? Yeah, and that, that's a good question. I think that's What's interesting about it is, is there's an emerging field of research now in that area. You know, there were some data that came out of Europe in the last five to 10 years showing that feeding increased insoluble fiber levels, which is kind of counterintuitive. You know, that first phase or two post weaning was actually bringing some benefit in terms of setting up that pig for subsequent nursery performance, you know, in terms of allowing that pig to transition better to, to the later nursery period when we transition onto more, quote, simple type diets. You know, it seems to it seems to be there's some benefit of more inert fiber, you know, at least in that phase one or phase two diet in terms of, you know, perhaps improving fecal fecal consistency and as well as improving um digestive enzyme capacity capability as well. You know, and what's interesting is now there seems to be a little bit more focus in the US, even looking at some of our more traditional high fiber ingredients, whether it's, you know, rice hulls or wheat mids here in the US. There was actually an abstract or two at Midwest Animal Science meetings, which which I was glad to see this year in terms of bringing that concept here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know we've certainly have seen some work uh, years ago. Dr. Pettigrew did a bunch of work with rice and its value with, against E. coli and, and certainly some enteric pathogens. And I haven't kept up on that data very well. So are we seeing an increase in mucin production in those nursery pigs if we're feeding fiber or, or has that been looked at very well? I don't think that has necessarily been looked 
had very well at that early nursery phase. You know, we know later on in production when you when you feed higher fiber, you start to perhaps increase mucin and maybe change the mucin subtypes as well. And then, as you mentioned, the whole pathogen binding capacity as well. I listened to an interesting um, online presentation last week that Cargill had put on, actually talking about um, basically rice hulls and their its ability to bind salmonella and decrease salmonella colonization in birds. And what was interesting there is even the variation between rice cultivar types. So not only the variation got me thinking, not only the variation between ingredients, but within an ingredient in terms of when you talk about the fiber characteristics, which makes things a little bit more complex, but a little bit more interesting to study that way. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. From a, from a nutritionist perspective, my mind is just blown, right? Because like now I don't have to worry about rice hulls, but I have to worry about what cultivar it's coming from. But in addition to that, when you're talking about how much fiber in those early nursery diets, how much are you talking in terms of percent or, or grams? Can you provide that information? You know, for, for, from the data that I've seen from an insoluble fiber perspective, that first nursery phase or two post-weaning, some are just north of, you know, 10% added wheat mid to get you close to where I think one would need to be. And palatability and pellet quality were, were okay on that? Yeah, and you know, obviously from, from a pellet quality perspective, one would expect if you bring more wheat products into the diet, you should at least, in theory, create a better pellet. Although I have been surprised sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's always synonymous, right? We hear the word fiber and we think, oh, the pellet quality is not going to be there. So I think it's a good question to ask. But yeah, I, I would agree. It's not always perfect, but you know, we hope nine times out of 10 wheat mids work. So I think that's a really good discussion. I know years ago I had seen some work on soluble fiber in nursery pigs, not insoluble. So I think that's an interesting concept is that we're actually going to insoluble, but in sows, we're talking more soluble fiber. So now just for clarity, it's really the insoluble, really in that immediate post weaning period. Now, once okay. you get to about a week and a half, that 10 to 14 days post weaning, and the pigs are consuming feed more readily, then there appears to be some benefit of weaving in some more of your soluble fiber sources okay. to really start kickstarting that fermentation in the hindgut that way. Now, what's interesting on that is the European data will suggest that perhaps the pathogen load in the pig and the environment may have an Im implication in terms of how well that pig responds to that soluble fiber. You know, if you're in a more, quote, dirty environment, soluble fiber may not be a beneficial uh, concept to bring into your nursery pig diet just because it may provide more fodder for those pathogens to, to, to ferment. Right, right. And I think that's a really good point is, you know, we've, we've not really put health in here. We've, we've talked about it a little bit that it can help with health, but I think that's a good point is that we also could have a potential negative if we're not watching that carefully, um, particularly in that early nursery when those pigs are so susceptible to enteric challenges. Um, you know, I think years ago when, when we saw some potential brachiospira issues right in late finishing, we were talking about fiber. And, and I think that conversation still continues today. So is there a, a good fiber or a bad fiber for a finishing pig? Which, which direction should we be looking at? Yeah, that brings up a good question. You know, obviously some of the work done there at Iowa State with Dr. Gabler recently, I saw some of his data showing the benefits of feeding more soluble fiber during a brachiospira challenge. 
which is kind of interesting is that's kind of opposite of some of the work done, what, about 10 or 12 years ago out of the University of Minnesota showing that there may be benefit of feeding higher levels of DDGs for a Lawsonia challenge. So that even brings more complexity into this whole fiber picture, you know, for, from a fiber composition perspective and pathogen challenge perspective mm -hmm. that one may perhaps be need, needing to keep in the back of their mind when, when formulating diets or bringing in different fiber sources. That's what I remember. In fact, when, when I was doing nutrition work, it was, oh, well, the DDGs are going to be good for this, but not for that. So, you know, you kind of have to balance it out. But, um, so, yeah, I think that's a very good point is, again, we need to be mindful of maybe what enteric pathogens we might be dealing with to appropriately select the correct ingredient to match our fiber needs for our pigs. It's a very good point. Uh, any other key points today that that you'd like to discuss that I'm missing? Um, I guess one one key take home point is that yes, fiber is important. We're you know slowly but surely generating the tools to have a better understanding of, of dietary fiber and how to best utilize it strategically. So basically, that's my main take home point for today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you've done a nice job of, of giving us some information today when we think about particularly grams of fiber um, for a sow and to be thinking about TDF rather than just crude fiber. And certainly to be thinking about the differences between soluble and insoluble fiber and how different phases of production or different health statuses might alter what type of fiber source we should be using. Um, so I think that's a, a very good discussion and it kind of helps lead us through a little bit more about what the Europeans have done and, and bring that to the United States and, and make it applicable. So thank you for that. Yep, thank you. It is time to our famous three. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health and nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. When it comes to the health of your herd and your bottom line, no guts means no glory. Lawsonia and Salmonella are two bacteria that work together to destroy the microbiome of a pig's gut, which can slow average daily gain. Only vaccinating against one can leave profit on the table. Protect against both with Procillus elitis for Lawsonia and Argus SCST for Salmonella. A productive herd starts with a healthy gut, and a healthy gut starts with Entric Health Solutions from Merck Animal Health. Learn more at buildahealthygut.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up our discussion today, Tom, as you know, we like to ask three questions of our guest speaker. Um, the first question I have for you is, what's your favorite swine resource book? What's your go-to? So kind of a, a non-original answer here. It would have to be the 2012 Swine NRC. I mean, that is still a resource that I pull on almost every day, you know, that I have an opportunity to be at my desk looking at something from a nutritional perspective, I still go back to the 2012 NRC for something. It's actually hard to believe that that resource is almost a decade old already. It's probably time for a new review, I think. But yeah, I have both 
two two sets of NRC, and I did. I pulled my 2012 off this morning, so <laughs> absolutely a good go-to resource. How about non-swine resource books? Uh, anything that you're currently reading that that you enjoy that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, I just uh, finally wrapped up uh, completing a book called Never Split the Difference. It's a book on uh, negotiation skills by a retired FBI agent named Chris Voss. He was one of their head negotiators for um, like terrorist kidnapping type situations and stuff like that. You know, and it really goes into, you know, obviously I'm not going to be negotiating for, you know, a kidnap release or anything like that, hopefully, but more on long lines of, you know, how do you negotiate business deals? How do you negotiate with potential customers? Or even how do you negotiate, you know, with your, your kids to do something that you would like them to do, you know, and really brought to light the importance of having good negotiation skills, uh, uh, you know, to be able to use those across life circumstances that way. That's a good, that's a good book. I'll have to write that one down and review it. I've not heard of that one. So I'll check that one out. The last question we have of you today, Tom, is really around when you think about people that are successful, what characteristics or qualities do you see in them that you think leads them to be successful? You know, obviously, besides being passionate and hardworking, the other thing that I have seen successful swine professionals do is really be open-minded and be willing to collaborate and, and learn from others. You know, as we talked about today, even this, this fiber issue is somewhat complex. And not a, one of us really has all the answers, you know, and with, especially with some of the tools being generated in other fields that enable us to really start to answer some of these questions, that collaborative piece really becomes important. I think that's a very good point. Wonderful. Well, again, Tom, we thank you for your time today. Um, it's certainly been a, a great discussion around fiber and particularly sows and, and what we should be thinking about as well as our early nursery pig. So again, we want to thank you from the Swinet Group and wish you all the best. And again, for our audience, this is Tom Weber from AV Vista. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcia Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.